0: The following episode is part of an ongoing series on the history of science and the Ottoman Empire, curated by Nir Shafir and available for download on iTunes, Hipcast, and SoundCloud. Check out the series tab on our website to learn more about this and other series, available only through OttomanHistoryPodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Sam Dolby. This is the second part of our two-part series on the history of science with Nir Shafir. I'm filling in for Sam Dolby, who is filling in for Ariane Urus uh, as co-host of this podcast. In part one, we gave you an overview of history of science in a global perspective. We mostly talked actually about the theory behind the writing of history of science. And in the second part, we're really going to put a lot of emphasis on the history of science in the Ottoman Empire in the Muslim world. So Nir, I'm glad you stuck around for part two of this podcast. Glad to be here, Chris. Why don't we start off with the story you told about the five-lira bill, For maybe for our listeners who weren't there for the first half, but also we didn't really give them the whole story. There's a little extra detail in there that now becomes especially
1: relevant as we move into the Ottoman Empire context. So if you pull out your wallets again, look at your five-lira bills. Uh, on the back of it, you'll see I didn't sell it the first person to ever receive a PhD in the history of science as a official discipline. And basically, there's an interesting backstory to, you know, how did he end up on this bill? And the way he did that is, you know, he was basically a very talented high school student, tested very well in his, uh, basically his college examination test, uh, and as a reward for testing so well he got to meet uh, mustafa Kemal adatürk and the story goes that he uh, when they met Atatürk asked him asked him what would you like to do and he says i want to study science and adatürk responds to him no the nation needs historians and the compromise they came to is that he would study history of science and so he was sent off to harvard where he um ended up Uh, basically completing the first PhD under a newly completed uh, history of science PhD program with uh, George Sarton, the uh, Belgian founder of this program.
2: So this isn't just the first PhD in history of science in Turkey. This is the first PhD in history of science in the whole world.
1: Yes, that's correct. So you're saying that Ataturk invented the history of science then? Let's say that Ataturk played a large part in the development of history of science.
0: But surely you didn't tell that anecdote just for that fact.
1: You're right. Uh, I think this basic anecdote has two points. One is I think that we can see the history of science of the Ottoman Empire as actually having a very long uh, backstory, starting from basically from the very beginning uh, that people were writing it, and Aydin Sayil was not the first, but he was one of the, one of the first, that, you know, people were involved in contact and in communication with the people that were also writing the history of science um, in for Europe, uh, people like George Sarton. And the second part um, is I think it also lets us kind of explore the early kind of the early pioneers of history of science in Turkey. So uh, the other person... That I'd like to mention is, you know, Adnan uh, Advar,
0: and this is Doctor Adnan, the husband of Haldar Adib Advar.
1: Right. So Haldar Adib and Adnan Advar basically joined uh, Mustafa Kemal. One, uh, you know, when they were leading their revolution. After they took over, in 1925, there was um, an attempted assassination attempt. They basically were both forced out of the country. They moved, I believe, somewhere to Switzerland, and then they basically had to spend the next. 15 years or so in exile until 1939, following um, uh, turk's death, uh, where he just uh, in, on the eve of World War II, he came back to Turkey. I think uh, Andan Adavar is an interesting person because he was both a doctor, I a mean, he was also the Minister of Health, and most importantly, he wrote basically kind of the first real narrative of what is, the, you know, what would be an Ottoman history of science. Uh, and it's, it was called uh, La Science chez le Turc basically translated to turkish and expanded it and called it osman osmanlı türklerinde ilim you know science or science among the ottoman turks and this kind of provided basically the first basic narrative of we would what they people at that time called science in the ottoman empire and again we have to mention that like um iden sile you know he was very close touch with uh, george Sarton the kind of founder of the first history of science PhD program, uh, at Harvard. And, you know, in the thirties, uh, he and a variety of other people were basically in contact and what they were doing is basically they were trying to craft, uh, ba- a new history of kind of the human race, uh, one that was based around, uh, science as this, uh, kind of, uh, uh ultimate goal, the kind of, purest thing that humans can achieve and also something that united them all in the sense that every uh, portion of humanity could contribute to this larger world of science. All right, so Adnan Adavar basically wrote this section about, and basically wrote the Turkish Ottoman Turkish part of it. So I mean uh, he was in also in contact with this uh, Italian historian who basically wrote the equivalent for the medieval Arab world. And so these people together kind of what they saw was uh i think what george sardin called it uh, the new human humanism uh trying to write this global history of humanity through the attempt to come up with this new universal truth that is science the way you describe this in terms of universalism
2: is interesting because you characterized both odvar and sila's background in terms of their relationship with mustafa kamal and so it would seem like they would their scholarship would perhaps have some link to a nationalist project. Do you see a contradiction there between this commitment to universalism and uh, the fact that they're coming out of a a place that is undergoing a profound national project?
1: Okay, let me talk very quickly about Aydin Seydler's work, uh, and then I'll talk about kind of the Turkish nationalist side of Uh, some of the stuff that was going on too. So what Aydin Sayla kind of added to this in the 1960s, he basically uh, wrote this very long exposition called The Observatory in Islam in which he basically traced the observatory uh, kind of as as an institution that is, you know, basically a building or a place to observe the heavens from its kind of start in like the medieval Islamic world uh, across time to basically claiming that, you know, the Europeans... Took and adopted large portions of this, and therefore, again, you get this narrative of uh, an adaptation and transfer of technology and knowledge uh, from the medieval world, medieval Islamic world, in this case, to uh, early modern Europe. And so, in both, actually, in both their books, the kind of the two main books, both uh, "Observatory in Islam" and "Osmanle Türklerinde Ilim," um, it's actually not terribly nationalistic. But if you look at, uh, especially uh, Aydin Sayla's other works, you really get this uh, obsessive need to prove that the uh, great, let's say a lot of the medieval Islamic philosophers, especially like al-Farabi and others, were actually Turks. And this need to kind of cast these foundational figures of medieval Islamic philosophy as uh, ethnically Turks. And al-Farabi wasn't Turkish? Uh, You know, it's basically pretty unclear came from an area where he could have ideally been Turkish but I think he spoke uh, basically Persian the obvious response to this is that in that period of time these ethnicities didn't have the national meanings that we have today but this but in the era of nationalism this was a high stakes
0: game because of course this is also the area the era of high colonialism and so in order to not be colonized essentially part of that was proving that you had a nation that was part of the civilization and what better emblem of civilization than science
1: right precisely and this is I mean so if you look at a lot of the works from the 1930s 40s up basically until the 1980s what you get is in the kind of one of the narratives they do is you basically you know science among the old Turks so uh, Soheil unver who is a guy a foundational guy for the history of medicine uh you know did one of his first things about you know science or medicine amongst the Uyghurs, uh, medicine amongst the Seljuk Turks um and so you basically try to draw found the quote-unquote origin of science within xyz uh group
0: and all of this if if i'm of course i'm not a historian of science but as i remember from the first part of this podcast where you talked about the theory behind history of science all this is some sort of variation on a kind of wig history of science right wherein science is moving forward that superior ideas are emerging, and our job is to tell the story of how those superior ideas emerged.
1: Right. So when basically the notion of weak history is that we in our present time live in the like most perfect possibility that everything we do is basically right, and we just have to explain how we got to this point. Uh, and every failure to do so, I mean every moment when we didn't get to this point is basically a failure that has to be attributed to some sort of decline or um, fanaticism or so.
0: So that being said, I'm wondering how these authors treated the Ottoman period because traditionally the nationalist historiography in Turkey has kind of, as you said, they want to jump back to the pre-Ottoman period to some extent. They want to look at the Seljuks or whatever, proto-Turks, etc. The Ottomans are, as you said, a period of decline and aberration from a march forward. So how do they treat this? Uh, did, did they write? Did they just ignore it, or who who was writing about science in the Ottoman Empire?
1: I I think it's a good question. I think if you look at still today, the majority of people in Turkey writing about history of science are still writing, often translating or writing about the early medieval, let's say the medieval Islamic tradition, uh, rather than actually focusing directly on the Ottoman experience. And this basically stems from the f- fact where you. You know, you basically have a golden age narrative, uh, a transfer narrative in which uh, if you see science as some sort of universally uh, defined and uh, understandable endpoint, it's very clear that, you know, okay, there was ancient Greeks, the Arabs uh, in the ninth and 10th century translated a lot of these treatises, preserved Aristotle and a lot of the scientific works, which were then transferred over in the late medieval period, to Europe, and in the 17th century, this kind of basically led to the scientific revolution. And so when you have such a narrative, the question is, well, what happens p- past the transfer point? Can you write uh, history, you know, what what's going on then? You know, is there even a worthwhile moment, is there even a point to writing the history of science after the notion, you know, basically, the moment of transfer of universal science already passed? Uh, and so, we actually get as a variety of interesting responses. The best one, I think, the narrative still today is that of Adnan Adavar, uh, and what he basically did is uh, set up a, in some ways, a traditional institutional style uh, Ottoman history. You basically have the Seljuk uh, building blocks in the 13th and 14th centuries, the establishment of medreses, uh people interested in astronomical and mathematical subjects, often having to travel to trans uh, Transoxania to the basically Timurid lands, to uh, practice those and get training in those, often going to Cairo. Uh, you know, after the conquest of Istanbul, the establishment of more and more medrases, basically Istanbul became a center of learning uh, rather than a periphery. And this kind of leading up to a few points that people highlight. One is the, uh, let's say, the maps and explorations of people like Piri Raiz. Another is the short-lived Ottoman observatory at the end of the 16th century. And after this, you basically have a problem where you know, if you can show that the Ottomans were interested in science, well, then you have to ask, well, why didn't they have a scientific revolution as well in the 17th century as the Europeans did? And the solution to this is, uh usually kind of uh taking notions of decline, saying uh people you often quote Kathab here or Kochi and they say that people stopped being interested in the rational sciences, uh, that these weren't being taught well and so forth. Really, I'm mean, basically it's on very minimal proof. At the same time, uh often in earlier times people would counterpose religion and science. And so you have this narrative of kind of growing fanaticism uh, that tended to obliterate the scientific uh, interest of people in the Ottoman Empire. Though, that said, An- Anadvarn, uh people like Adin Sayulid actually didn't really emphasize that point. That was just the general... The default the assumption. The default assumption that many people otherwise. like... And you find it in Halil Hina- uh, Nalchik and others. And then after that, you basically, once you have kind of the destruction of science, the narrative that people often attach to is... Uh, the introduction of Western science, and that the adap- uh, kind of slow and problematic adaptation of that until the 19th century. So in the 18th, you know, basically this is why Kiatapchelabi is a fundamental figure. He's the one who recognized the problems with the system. He was kind of you know a canary in the coal mine, saying people aren't interested in science, so forth, and went so far as to start translating and reading uh, works in Latin and incorporating that into his works. Uh, and after that, you basically, especially, you have another moment in the early 18th century where aspects of what people, certain science called Paracelsian or uh, iatrochemical medicine and chemistry is being used uh, partially the, at the end of the 18th century, you have the kind of, uh, you, another, so another moment is the introduction of the printing press under Mutaférica and its eventual collapse and then until the end of the 18th century, finally I have kind of a sustained, what people often like to see as a sustained interest in Western science with the importation and uh, enlistment of you know European engineers and artillery exports, the beginning of the Mohandas or the engineering college. And people kind of from there on draw this kind of line of adaption of Western science. And so what I think we're going to do in the rest of this podcast is
0: try to maybe overcome this narrative a little bit that you've set up, see how we can rethink the history of science during the early modern period in the Ottoman empire and so i'm wondering how do you go about that is it that we need to broaden our definition of science or are there things going on that are simply overlooked how, how do you see the the solution to this problem because it's it seems like a kind of as you said a historical dead end if we're just assuming that there's there's no place for the early modern Ottoman empire in the history of science
1: yeah, so I mean, basically, this is the narrative, and a few people have kind of responded to this so far. Okay. Uh, the response is ba- the biggest one has been by this guy Ekmeleddin Hasanolu, uh, born in Egypt to Turkish parents, basically moved to, uh, started off as a scientist or I think a chemist of sorts in um, Istanbul. Started becoming very interested in the history of science, and his big uh, interest was basically kind of seeing, uh, seeing Islam and science. Uh, not as antagonistic opponents, but two partners, basically. And so he often tried to kind of uh, counter what he saw as Adnan Advar's kind of uh, imposing secularism, uh, trying to show that, you know, there was continued transfer of technology and knowledge from, the, from Europe to the Ottoman Empire and that people weren't necessarily opposed to this on religious grounds. And uh, people following in his vein— and later he became, he was basically in charge of Irsika, which is one of the main publishing and research centers for history of science scholarship in Turkey. He was charged charge of Irsika, and now he's the head of the Council of Islamic States. So people in his vein kind of continued this, and what they've done a lot is actually just compile giant uh, catalogs of uh, works and attribute them to authors, and often they just use this based off of other catalogs, but it's a useful thing. So uh,
0: generating more data about what potential interest in science could have been during in, in
1: the Ottoman Empire. Right.
0: Like if we think of medical thing, looking at medical texts that maybe have been ignored, for example. Yeah, so
1: there's been a lot more, basically, because uh, Adhan did a very good job, but he, he just kind of touched on the surface, so these people have been bringing up more and more. And kind of since then, the, there's actually been quite a bit of information, especially if you look at Turkish History of Science journals, um you get especially these institutional looks at medrases, at institutions like the uh, munajimbasha uh the chief astrologer or the chief astronomer, uh the you know, the head physician. You kind of get these like basic lists of names, maybe books they wrote, what they were responsible, uh general, a few documents collected about them. The overall narrative is still that one of Adnan Advar set up. Um but now to get to your Question, which is kind of you know, how do we challenge this? What, where are things going? What's uh, different? So I think one of the first things we have to do today, and I think historians of science in uh, working on Europe and China have done this very well, is to discard a notion of science as sort of an universal, ahistorical uh, form of knowledge that has certain characteristics uh, like rationality and so forth, which are often just reflections of our own. Uh, values today so when people make these claims that it's universal it's only masking a
2: particularity that's probably arising from europe or is that even the right question to be asking
1: i think it's a very important question um and you know basically historians of science in europe and china have been tying science to particular contexts you know not seeing science just some sort of um cerebral thing that you do by thinking or so forth but actually done through little actions and practices as we talked in the previous podcast um and what i think what we have to do is basically just look at you know what what were people when people were investigating nature in a systematic way and now i'd use that as the basic definition of science the investigation of nature in a systematic fashion you know what did it look like in the ottoman empire And let's kind of discard our notions of what it should be. Like, okay, if it's astrology, let's not look at it, which is the way it's been done today. Or if it doesn't fit, uh, you know, modern chemistry, let's not look at it, which is the main reason. Basically today, for instance, if we look at the history of uh, chemistry, uh, you know, it's kind of obsessed with this adaptation and introduction of iatrochemical medicine that is medicine made out of uh, minerals, rather than plant substances, uh, the introduction of that into the Ottoman Empire in the 18th, uh, early 18th century, rather than just looking at all the different ways people were experimenting and trying to understand nature. So once we do that, and I think once we tie it to very specific context, you know, either specific institutions like a hospital or so forth, uh, we can then ask the question, which is the question that historians of science in general today ask is, well, if science came out of all these little p- particular contexts, how did it become... Uh, like a more universal type of knowledge that, you know, we can all agree to accept on rather than just being my or your personal opinion.
0: And I think the answer that we would give here is institutions, right? It's that when a certain institution has a certain power, uh, endorses an approach or an idea, that's when it becomes, that's when it gains the potential for universality, right? In in, his, in history, there's been countless, for example, farmers and peasants who have made very interesting discoveries uh, probably in their own application, and in, in, in their own methods, but those don't become universalized because there's, there's no power to spread. However, when a, a, a government adopts a particular view and disseminates it through schools, through various institutions based on certain scientific principles, for example, that's where the universality comes from. It's, it's about a relationship between power and knowledge.
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely something I mean that's definitely part of the picture, right? You you know, what's the difference between a gardener and a botanist? This is a question I posed earlier, you know. You know, both of them know a great deal about plants, about development of uh seeds, sorry, the germination of seeds and so forth, what conditions make them grow. Uh but one of them has a knowledge that is basically officially sanctioned by particular institutions uh and can express it in a way and has access to the uh, media that allows him to express it where uh, the other uh she might not be able to do so mm-hmm. and I mean so I think institutions are one part, but then there's also just the question of how does how does knowledge transfer over you know it's not just okay, an institution gives you some say within the people attached right. to that institution, but you don't you know how does it move from one place to another is a larger question you know. Why? I mean, this is, I think, one of the big questions. You know, if you agree that something is just technologically better or objectively more correct, more scientific, then why aren't people just adopting it the moment they see it? And this is uh, another large area of inquiry that I think people are still trying to understand, which is, you know, how does knowledge move? How does technology transfer? And what are the implications of that? Mm -hmm. Um, So exploring
2: the ways these ideas have been transferred across time and space is certainly a rich area for study. Um, I wanted to go back about to this definition of, of science and the question of the difference between the botanist and the gardener, because certainly lots of transfers of knowledge also happen along, uh, that scale between the practitioner and the theorist and, and maybe even that dichotomy of, um, the gardener as the practitioner and the botanist as the theorist is, is inaccurate, but, but there are transfers going on there too. How, how do we account for that in the history of science? I
1: think that's an excellent point. I think it really kind of pushes us to think about where, you know, when we talk about these contexts of science, where are they, what, where is science occurring? And I think often, especially in the history that's been written about the Ottoman empire, we really just think of kind of these institutional contexts. Often it's medrases. Medrases are like a great, Uh, fixation of historians of Ottoman science because they see basically science only can be taught and understood in these institutional settings. You know, once they stop uh, teaching astronomy, that means astronomy is dead. And I really think we have to look kind of at all the different possibilities of where is science learned, where, um, you know, do people observe and try to understand nature. And so to open that up, I mean, we have to basically look at different, Social gatherings like mudlaces, uh basically were an informal gathering of scholars where they would come sometimes to recite poetry, sometimes to drink, but often to have actually very deep intellectual discussions. And these kind of occurred beyond the traditional curriculum. Another place to look, another context to look at is, as historians of science of Europe have been doing, is to look at artisanal production. You know, as an artisan, you basically have to m- manipulate. Uh, a great deal of natural matter. You know, how do you create your dyes? This, you know, requires some knowledge of chemical techniques. How do you, you know, manipulate metals and so forth. And in order to kind of learn these things, you basically have to start observing and understanding nature. And for instance, I think there's been some great work on the European side where, you know, we have a good knowledge of kind of how did artisans understand and know nature and how that people in universities and kind of more elite institutions Took that knowledge and presented it in a different, uh, more acceptable manner, and so I think this is one of the places that uh, we could really look into. You know, what what is the act of pharmacy making in the Ottoman Empire? Uh, for instance, recently I've been looking greatly into the kind of production of medicine uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Kind of how did these things called majuns, these base, these medicinal pastes that they would give people, uh, how are they produced? How did you know where did the materials come from? How did people learn about them? Uh, so these are other points of um, science that basically exist when they say they're not just these rarefied rooms of uh, intellectual discussion in the medrese, but occur all around. And I think one of the things to kind of expand what history of science is in the non empire is we have to look at these uh, type of places.
0: I think you're absolutely right, Nir. And of course, one of the reasons why people might fixate on the institution is, is not just out of uh, lack of creativity, but because those institutions produce more sources and, and the, the graduates of these institutions write manuscripts and produce manuscripts, whereas a lot of the, the practical science you're talking about, some of it might get written down in a manual, but a lot of it is just day to day practice. For right. example, if we think of the scientific knowledge of midwives.
1: Precisely. I mean these things aren't passed you know through the written record, is passed uh, you know, often like artisanal techniques, you know, between people, between generations of practitioners, uh, and how do you get to that? Uh, as a historian, you you know, you basically in this case you may you may find it in treatises, you may not, but you know, to be, I think this is kind of one of the frontiers of what you could do. You'd have to go to court records, you know, look at court cases where midwives are brought up see what they're doing, what's mentioned. Another, you know, maybe some of these things are mentioned in state documents too, uh, if on occasion these practices are regulated. You know, it's much easier in the 19th century than in earlier periods.
0: Well, we have to pay attention to things that have been written off, as you said. Maybe things like magic, for example. Or I know you work on dream interpretation.
1: Right, so again, I think that also points to another field that, you know, what has been traditionally considered irrational uh, astrology, dream interpretation, magic... Uh, I think by historian of sciences now historians of science have now really taken these subjects seriously, really tried to understand people doing astrology are still observing the stars. Uh, people doing magic are still trying to often change uh, the natural world around them in different ways, and they have an understanding of the natural world. So you know there was actually there are a great deal of magic manuals uh, in the early modern period. You know, how do we understand these? What do they have to say about the world around them? And I think, again, we can expand this even further. Uh, You know, often, let's take the classic case of astronomy, people just want to focus on uh, whether or not uh, the Galilean, basically the heliocentric model of the universe was adopted or not, and why did this occur? I mean, what you have is basically a situation where Copernicus and then later Galileo, Uh, argued for this heliocentric model. And there actually have been, you know, studies by Ekman and and others that have shown that uh, there were moments when this model basically was read by, I mean, basically was known by certain Ottomans, proposed, and then it just never really caught on. So you have it in the late 17th century. Um, Again, you have pieces of it in Mutafereka's Press you know, Mutafarika adds it on to, uh, I believe, Ketip Chalabi's Jahanuma, And then again in the, um, uh, Ismail Haq uh, Erzurumlu, you know, you basically get pieces of this in his, like, grand marif, marif, um name. And the reality is, is that this is just one small part of the puzzle. Uh, there's actually all these other astronomical works, cosmological works, uh, which seem religious. For instance, I'm talking about things like uh, al suyuti is a, basically a late 15th, 30th, 16th century Egyptian scholar, extremely popular, one of the most copied authors out there. Uh, he wrote basically a kind of guide to the cosmology of the world, uh, which also explained a great deal about, you know, stars and so forth, on uh, the solar system, and he did it through hadiths, you know, prophetic traditions. The reality is that this text was much, much more popular than I think, and it kind of reflected more general knowledge about uh, about nature, about the stars and heavens, and actually was commented on and translated uh, and developed further in the later periods, even after, you know, in the late 17th, early 18th century. And so I think we have to take into consideration why, how is it that this seemingly, you know, uh, what historians of science in Turkey today call irrational or folk beliefs, you know, why did they continue, what did they actually reflect, you know what's in them let's not just discard them let's take them seriously
0: well it's almost as if one of the problems that's taking place is that you know with this intensely teleological view of scientific progress Mm -hmm. you say okay we have an astronomer it's the year 1700 he doesn't accept the galilean model therefore all of his conclusions and observations are useless for us right Right. it's 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 as if, if if they if there's one assumption or one critical point that's missed that historians have tended to disregard the entirety of the work.
1: Right, precisely. And I think, uh, you know, we really just have to understand, like, people were writing these works. Why were they writing them? You know, exactly. what did nature mean to these people? And I think, again, you know, again, this we can see it again. There's numerous examples. Let me just give you another one of medicine. Uh, people often focus so much, or let's say scholars often focus on the introduction of iatrochemical medicine. But really what we're seeing here. Uh, is there actually a rather limited introduction to do the basically the traditional herbal medicine? Uh, let's say the urban herbal medicine traditions—they're widespread. Uh, seem to have continued. Uh, they basically integrated parts of this new uh, chemical medicine, and then you know the medicinal tradition just kind of kept going. Uh, but really, it's only people just. Scholars just focus on this little moment in the beginning of the 18th century when some iatrochemical, some Paracelsian ideas were introduced and kind of ignore the larger picture, the larger understanding of what is medicine and healing that's out there. And so I think we'll explore these questions of kind of chemistry and um, of chemistry and, you know, alchemy later on in a future episode uh, that we'll do with uh, Tuna Artun on uh basically alchemy in the ottoman world
0: yeah we want to remind you guys that this won't be the last word on uh, history of science in the ottoman empire in fact we have a whole series coming we have an upcoming episode with harun kuchuk as well about the engagement of the ottoman world with the enlightenment that will be very interesting for people and in this regard i'll make reference to a previous episode we did on uh, the manual of sheriff Sabunjolu, who was a, a doctor and surgeon uh, who wrote a very interesting illustrated surgery manual that we we talked about. And one of the things that struck me in, in this book as a non-specialist, but someone definitely interested in the history of medicine, was that he has all of these descriptions of what seemed to me like experiments, right? He explains how he tried different methods, different treatments, saw which one worked better, and then, you know, came to conclusions based on a a kind of experimentation of some kind. And I know in, in, in the first part of this podcast, we talked about the role of experimentation, the role of the laboratory in the history of science. So I'm wondering if historians of science of the Ottoman Empire have argued that a lack of experimentation, as you said, a lack of—we've uh, already talked about a supposed lack of interest in the rational sciences, which may or may not be valid. But what about what about experimentation? What are people saying about this?
1: Experimentation is again one, what uh, we believe to be one of the hallmarks of modern science. Again, it's this notion, especially in the early modern period, that you're challenging the knowledge of the ancients with your own observations, as to say you're not just uh, accepting what they say is true and basically trying to make reality uh, fit to that model, you are basically observing reality and may, trying to derive a model from that. And so therefore, I think this there's often been a great emphasis on experimentation, not so much amongst, I believe, historians of the Ottoman Empire, but in history, history of science in general, and there, that's why kind of one of the funda- foundational books in the field is about kind of what does the experiment mean and how did it come about, and kind of situating that methodology uh, within its historical context. That said like you know I am not that familiar with Sabunjolu uh, to comment but I think medicine is kind of one of these places where you really uh find you know this need to uh, observe and compare directly especially cuz you're really you have these models from the ancient Greeks and you have to kind of see uh where things fit up and where don't where they don't and um and i think it's you know a very fertile place for future investigation and i think and i believe we talk we will talk about it more with our upcoming podcast uh with Harun Kuchuk
2: no yeah, you've made the case today that we should include a lot of things that aren't typically considered science in our understanding of science we should include things like dream interpretation and alchemy something that's been coming up again and again as as you've talked about your definition of science has been nature. How do we define nature?
1: Okay. Like a definition that I would try to come up with off the top of my head is kind of the material world around uh, the material world that humans interact with and observe that is kind of outside of, uh, let's say, their culture or, you know.
2: But it includes human bodies too, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, it would include human bodies. And again, that'd be part of their material world. Um, that said, like, it's actually really, you know, I think we're a very long ways from kind of trying to get at what did people in the Ottoman Empire understand as nature. It's, you know, quite unclear. They, even this notion of landscape or, you know, nature in a generic sense of kind of the wild is, we have no idea what, you know, what what that might have been like. One of the places we could look at is these... um uh, what we, I call like classification of, of the sciences genre where you basically the author gives you a variety of sciences and kind of classifies them for you. you know, basically it's a these topics of the sciences manuals they they're an adaptation of ancient Greek tradition that was brought about in the medieval Islamic period. but in the Ottoman period they really multiply and there's a quite a lot of them. And by the 16th century, when you get to people like Tashqa Prasad, they really have like 316 topics of the sciences. That's to say, he could identify 316 branches of knowledge. And this, you know, what they considered knowledge, that is ilm, ranged from, you know, the study of the Quran, to things like rhetoric, to what they even had this term called like al-ilm al-tabay, natural sciences, which included things like dream interpretation, uh so I mean they had something called uh the natural science that um I think had for them a sort of I would call maybe a methodology, which sometimes they call like um this notion of nazari of sort of direct observation. And so, you know, using sources like this we can slowly reconstruct that. But we always have to keep in mind that these are not reflections on Ottoman, you know, it's not like Ottoman society as a whole has this. This is just one person's particular view that he's arguing uh, for particular reasons.
2: Nir, you've undone dichotomies, several dichotomies between rational and irrational, both of those with quotation marks, um, between, between the, the natural world and, and humans and human culture in some ways too. The other dichotomy that's arisen in this discussion uh, to me has been between Europe and the Ottoman world. Um, between the literature on Europe and the literature on the Ottoman Empire, uh, what kinds of research projects might begin to think about transfer between these places or conversations between these places at the same time?
1: Yeah, I think if we're looking kind of what what would the future of uh, Ottoman history of science look like, I think there's a great deal to be done. As I said, you know, just looking at the literal local production uh in the local context of production of knowledge. Uh that said, you know, another big topic today is often transfer, the notion of cross-cultural interaction exchange. Um, you know, how did these, you know, how did science or knowledge about nature from Europe come and interact within the Ottoman Empire and to a lesser degree vice versa. Um, and I think we see more and more uh, dissertations coming out on this topic, you know, Ottoman scholars who were reading European works and what did they take out of them uh, and what they didn't. And I think this is kind of, on one hand, one of the most exciting kind of opportunities. Certainly, it's undeniable that that there was what p- some people call a contact zone, that there was exchanges, uh, that, you know, basically being in the Eastern Mediterranean, there's no way that there wasn't a constant flow of ideas and peoples and materials that mediated and allowed these exchanges to happen and i think we'll see a lot of that in harun and harun kucuk's uh, podcast on kind of the early Enlightenment in istanbul um having said that and you know being very excited for that i think there's a few kind of caveats that we have to uh keep in mind i mean one is uh, something that marwa shakri uh, suggested in her article is that you know often when you have these transfer type histories especially kind of this no especially these bigger civilization type transfer narratives you know, that the Arabs transferred science to the Europeans, uh, you get often a kind of heavy emphasis on um, technologies, mathematics, rather than kind of general const- general understandings of nature, general-, general world views. And so, you know, we have to not just look at, you know, how did the astrolabe or, you know, how did these sorts of things move over, but also kind of how did understandings of nature... Uh, you know, wonders, the moon, and so forth, whatever, uh, move or not move between places. Two, I think we always have to keep in mind it's not as if something comes over and is immediately adopted. The fact that things didn't get adopted is as interesting, I think, as uh, their adaptation. Um, Here, there's a myriad, you know, myriad examples. There's plenty of examples of, say, early, early on, like weapons technology being transferred over, people like uh, Gabor Agustin and other people have worked on this. Uh, but then there's other questions, you know, one of the million-dollar ones is, you know, why did the printing press not take off? Why did chemical medicine not make it? You know, why did, uh, again, astronomical techniques, these sorts of things, not transfer to the Ottoman Empire? And I think in all of these, you have to understand, you know, you can't answer that question until you actually know what was production of knowledge, what was the kind of texture of knowledge on in the Ottoman Empire like you know, you can't just say something came over or that people were reading one another, you know, that you have to, you have to understand, you know, what were their assumptions about nature and how did this knowledge from Europe often, you know, very imperfect piecemeal knowledge when it came over, you know, how, how did people view it and understand it? And I think these, this kind of deeper notion of interaction is, is often missing. So it becomes less a question of
2: what went wrong than just what went on.
1: Yeah. and I think that's definitely one of the things. And I think One other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, often these interactions are so focused on Europe, uh, Ottoman Empire, and I think that's perhaps we just know so much more about early modern Europe. It's often easier to write, kind of find something in early modern Europe, try to look for an equivalent or transfer in the Ottoman Empire, and kind of write that interaction and that's the story of that interaction. But, you know, we we have to keep in mind, uh, let's say, two or three things. One is that there's... You know, many think basically that the Ottoman Empire essentially, I think, I believe, had a knowledge culture that was, to some degree, you know, had its own traditions, and understandings, and that these have to kind of, we really don't know anything about them. We don't really understand how medicine worked. You know, we kind of say it's a galenic or something, but we don't actually understand more than that. Like, and it, we don't understand the complexities, what people were thinking, who were the major authors, who were the major books. A lot of these things are still very fuzzy, So when we try to write the history of interactions, we don't get that. We lose half one side. Two is that we ignore other interactions that are not uh, European-Ottoman. For instance, much of the Materia Medica, much of the uh, books and interactions that were occurring were between, let's say, uh, India and Iran and the Ottoman Empire. And there's actually, you know, as many if not more uh, scholars and books and so forth Extend you know moving between these areas, so this basically raises the question you know why do we consider for instance interaction between the Ottomans and Europeans a type of cultural exchange a type of encounter, and not often the counter between let's say uh, the Mughal Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and I mean it basically raises this larger question which is you know what is in an encounter where does it occur can account can even uh, occur within an empire, you know what does it mean to encounter the other and have the other challenge you? And this is kind of some of the questions I deal with in my own research on travelers in the Ottoman Empire. So near the sense we've gotten today is that
0: certainly there's been a lot written about the topic, but there's still a lot of like very uh, groundbreaking work to be done in the history of science with regards to the Ottoman Empire because, again, there's, there's so many texts that hasn't, haven't been looked at or haven't been treated with the kind of questions you're asking
1: in mind. To some degree, that's true, Chris, but I, I think we have to always emphasize the fact that there's been a great deal of uh, scholarship done uh, in Turkey and in their world on history of science already. And I think, you know, when as people go to explore it, as people come to explore this topic more, I think we, you know, we should always turn back to their studies, look at what they've done and acknowledge that. And I think that's, you know, it's a great starting point to kind of, uh, kind of, to basically, I think it's a great starting point uh when we want to address these questions that historians of science in europe and china have uh but for the ottoman empire
0: yeah i mean i i know these things are always turning up for me and like these obscure symposium publications and things you wouldn't normally look to maybe the point is you can't be looking at just at university presses and major journals you need to look at stuff in turkish maybe just published on the internet that has a lot of uh, raw material, good starting places.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would just go through, um, one of the most helpful things I've done is just, you know, go through the old journals, the old history of science journals put up by Istanbul University or Ankara University, go through these conference publications, just kind of see what is being written on. You know, some, a lot of it is 19th century. Uh, a lot of it revolves around the same topics, but, you know, there is a great, there is a great, you know, there are quite a few treatises that have been dealt with, uh people have kind of delved into quite a few topics, even though it's not as accessible uh, as we may think it is.
0: Well, I hope we've whet the appetite for at least some of our listeners, because we do have quite a few uh, upcoming episodes on the history of science. We're actually going to have a whole series on this by the time things are done. And I think, Nir, you've provided a great foundation for that series. So I really appreciate you bringing your expertise to the podcast, which you've been so involved with, finally showcasing your own Uh, research and experience. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you, Chris and Sam.
0: We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. For those who want to find out more, NIRS provide us with a very helpful bibliography on the website where you can also find the first part of our podcast on the history of science. Again, dealing with the theory. That's where you can also leave your comments and questions. Maybe check out our Facebook page uh, and get involved with the community. That's all for this installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care.